Welcome to another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This recording was made on Tuesday 20th of October 2015 and it features Eric Huang, the Development Director at the software company Made in Me. So hello, I'm Eric, as Nicholas said, and I'm a development director at Made in Me. We are a digital publisher, sort of digital agency based in London. Um, as you can tell, I'm American. I grew up in LA, and I was a very geeky kid. I loved <laughs> so geeky things, video games and Star Wars and, um, and, and books, of course. Um, but there was one thing that I loved more than anything else, and that was dinosaurs. So I went to university at Berkeley in, in, in California, and I studied paleontology, thinking that all of my sort of Jurassic Park dreams would, would come true. But the reality of doing field work and being sort of in academia was not what I thought and not what the movies told me. So I moved back to L.A. and thought, this is, this is Hollywood, I want to I be in the movies. And I ended up doing a lot of odd jobs. I um, was a tour guide at Universal for a while, was uh, uh, an assistant to a lot of very angry people, <laughs> before finally... Getting my first, I guess my first real job, which was as a receptionist at, at Disney, um, an animation studio, which was fantastic. And from there, I, I became a secretary to the creative director of Disney Publishing and how I got into publishing. So this was the, uh, the mid-90s, and it was a really great time to be at Disney. People talk about this, this period as a sort of a renaissance in, in, in animation when The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and everything came out. And uh, one, of the, one of the first things I did when I started at Disney was there was an, a little company called Pixar which had just been sold by Apple to Disney. And they had the, the CEO there was a guy named John Lasseter who you know, needed to figure out how to work with the publishing division at Disney because John Lasseter was very much a storyteller. And you know, he's a filmmaker at heart, and, but the stories that he created for the films for Toy Story was really only the tip of the iceberg, that there was so much development of the world beyond, that all the sequels that have since happened in Toy Story, um, those, those ideas were started from the very beginning. They're not exactly the same, but in building the first Toy Story script, he created a bigger world. And we worked together at Disney Publishing because he was, you know, he was really interested in books. Books was one of his favorite forms of media, and, uh, but he wasn't so much interested in just having the publishing division retell the film story, although we did do that, of course. He also wanted the publishing division to help tell the little bits of stories that he couldn't tell in the 90 minutes of film that, that came out. Um, and he worked very closely with the other divisions within consumer products, which is you know, the, 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 the parts of the Disney uh, organization that did toys, apparel, toothbrushes, shoes, uh, everything. Um, and John Lester, he was also really into toys, of course, and he always thought that toys were um, a storytelling uh, form of media as well. And I think all you need to do is watch kids play with toys to realize that what they are are storytelling tools that encourage them to sort of retell the stories we give them and also make up their own stories based on our characters. Uh, this was also a time with a new, relatively new director named Tim Burton was also there. And you know we had the great privilege of working with him to help develop Nightmare Before Christmas. And it's interesting because Nightmare Before Christmas was really, you know, before the days of social media and everything, I think if that if that story world were created today, it would be much more in this sort of this transmedia way in which 
little bits and pieces will be told all over on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, everywhere, because that's very much the way Tim Burton and his storytelling team thought of at the time. But of course, this was the 90s, and nothing except the web, the very early version of the web, and CD-ROMs existed then. But you know, one of the great things about Disney as, as a storytelling company is that their focus is really first on the brand, on the stories themselves before the formats, so before any of the other you know, um, products or items or, or different types of media that they would use to tell further stories. First, it was all about the stories and the characters, then the medium was second. Uh, Disney, of course, is a film company, so the first thing they focused on is the film, but the film wasn't the end result of all their hard work, it was just the beginning from other things, especially books, could, could spring. So I, when I left Disney, uh, I went to work at Penguin first uh, in Australia and then in the UK, and I was uh, at Penguin for all, all throughout for a total of, of 10 years. Um, and most recently in, in, in London as well, which I worked until uh, three years ago. And when I worked at Penguin, I was one of the, the children's publishers there, and I looked after the pop culture list. So what we do is we, it's called licensed publishing. So our authors, rather than being individuals or people often, were companies. So people like BBC, Nintendo, Disney, um, companies that made brands. Uh, and what we did was we worked with them to kind of develop their stories around their characters into books. Um, and licensed publishing as it was, I would say five, eight years ago, looked something like this, where you would work with your author, who in this case is a toy company. So you work with the creators at Lego, the guys who created the minifigures, created Ninjago, worked for Lego Star Wars, and kind of work with them on what stories they were telling, and then what bits we could, we could tell as well. So you'd work with them and their creative teams to come up with formats um, non-fiction, fiction, activity, reference, adult, kids, and where, where could you spin this brand out where it makes sense to make books? <laughs> These days, at, at a big publishing house or a licensed publisher, a licensed publishing program looks more like this, where the book is still at the core of everything we do, but the publisher is also involved in everything else. So in the past, what would happen is that, so Peter Rabbit, for example, um, Penguin, Penguin Random House now, owns Peter Rabbit. In the past, what would have happened is that the publisher would have only taken the book rights. Um, the, the rights behind everything else would remain with an estate, an agent, or be sold to someone like Disney, uh, Warner Brothers, or even the BBC. Um, and the publisher would launch the brand, make the book. But once the book was out, the film came out, the publisher wouldn't be involved at all. So what happened is that you know, the, the, the publisher who built the brand wouldn't be involved in everything else that sprung from the brand. But these days, it's not is not the case. Penguin has a license, has a consumer products team who, you know, they, they sell rights for the books, but they also sell rights for a plush manufacturer, for um, baby toys and um, melamine and, and, and everything as you see here. And I think what's important about this is the publisher, you know, we, we've launched the brand um, and I think we owe it to, to remain involved financially, but also creatively. So that, you know, if when McDonald's wants to do a Peter Rabbit, promotion, we have to think, okay, what are Peter Rabbit's core values? Beatrix Potter, whose estate Penguin owns and owes a sort of allegiance to, what would she say about the McDonald's promotion? She'd probably say no, so we would say no. Um, but, you know, a lot of other book brands that get sold off, that sort of thinking uh, isn't a part of it. And I think for the longevity of the brand, it, it suffers. So, you know, TV is also very much a part of what publishers like Penguin, Walker, Scholastic, um, Random House as well, also are involved in. 
So again, in the olden days, what would have happened, oh, and by olden days, I just mean really five, ten years ago, when there was a, <laughs> when there was, say, you know, TV or film interest in a book brand, a publisher would sell an option uh, to a film company, which often meant that they would sell the rights uh, to the film company. So the rights to say, I don't like the way this looks, I don't like the story. The, the film company or TV company would basically have all creative control. These days, what happens is someone like Penguin and the other publishers I mentioned is that we co-produce, which means that you invest in the TV program, in the film, which means you're still involved creatively as well. And then once you know, the merchandise, the socks and the toothbrushes and everything come out behind this show, which is on Nickelodeon and CBeebies, come out, the publisher actually still makes money from it as well. I mean, licensed public, the, the consumer product's revenue for brands is generally five times that much of the book, at least. So something like Harry Potter, the overall business of Harry Potter, the book is actually a tiny fraction of that. The film makes, makes far, more, far more revenue. And now the publishers are involved, which I think is very important. Because, I mean, if you think about the biggest brands today, these all came from our industry. These are all publishing brands. Um, but, I mean, sadly, none of these brands, the publishers are involved, except for uh, Marvel. I mean, the comic book industry has always been very, very savvy about brands and has always been involved in the wider sort of storytelling um, industry rather than just sticking to publishing. So we build the biggest brands, and I think it's, it's really great, from my perspective, personally, that publishers are now involved in the financial rewards of building brands as well. So branding also has to do with uh, not, not just kind of the stories and the IPs, the intellectual properties we create, but also on your, your consumer brand, your imprints, you know, what does your company name mean? Um, Disney, again, um, Disney is a master of branding. Everything they create, you know, be it something on television, a theme park, a cruise line even, um, or every brand that they have, everyone, you know it's Disney right away. They, they're very, very conscious about their branding and everything comes very simply down to their, their, their corporate brand, which is also a consumer brand, Disney. And it's not just the sort of the, the big evil American companies who do this. The BBC is actually a master of branding as well. I think even, you know, um, things like proms, or Radio 6, that don't even carry the name BBC on it. Everyone knows it's BBC because, again, it's very important. That branding, that, that customer loyalty to anything, you know, anything Disney creates, you kind of have an idea of what it's going to be, love it or hate it. So if I were to say, you know, Disney's next movie is about uh, a boy in <laughs> outer space who decides he hates school. All of us, said, we kind of have an idea of what that boy's going to look like. He'll probably have some alien psychic who sings, right, or it's kind of slightly annoying. Like, you already have an idea of what it is, and love it or hate it, you know exactly what that means, and you know that a minimum amount of X millions of people will actually go and buy into that. BBC is the same when you say something's on BBC One versus uh, Radio, Radio One versus Radio Four. You have an idea already what that is. Love it or hate it, but they, they, they know the consumer, and the consumer knows what they're going to get from that. And I think these days, when publishers have so much more contact with their consumer, with the reader, it's very important for us to think about branding in that way, who we are as companies and as imprints. And of course, you know, let's not forget that um, a lot of our biggest partners and competitors also are very, very good at branding. And the case in point is, these are the top three selling books, uh, the top three selling books on the New York Times bestseller list Christmas last year. Who published them? If you didn't work in publishing, you have no idea because the branding of the publishers is nowhere on the books except the spine. Now, and on the, uh, the preliminary pages, which no one reads. Um, they were actually all published by Penguin Random House. Um, and Penguin, I think, as, as an imprint, is very unusual in publishing in that 
it's also a consumer brand. Um, you know, it, there, it's an emotion. There's an emotional response that's elicited by Penguin. Again, love it or hate it. In the way that you know, you have IBM or you have Intel, but then Apple means something different. It's an emotional response. Love it or hate it. And Penguin is the same thing. It's rare amongst publishing brands that it's also a consumer brand. In that, you know, I think they're the only company where you know, I don't, I don't know who would buy a HarperCollins mug. You know, would you would you buy a Walker deck chair? That, I don't think that means the same thing as a Penguin mug or a Ladybird mug or a Puffin mug. So they you know they're very lucky in that they have these consumer brands so much so that there are entire blogs dedicated to what you know books from other publishers would look like as Penguin books, or what Tarantino films might look like with a Penguin design, what games big big you know um, a AAA games would look like as a Penguin classic. And again, this doesn't happen with other publishers. So it's very, very important, especially now that I think the competitive landscape today, you know, ever since I think, I think ever since the iPhone and the iPad came out, everything sort of suddenly changed in that the competitive landscape in publishing is not really this, it's more this, especially in kids. Um, you know, because, it, you know, the app stores is the one place where we all compete in the same space. It's not like, at, you know, at Waterstone sells books, not there's toys, it's the toy section. It's not like in, at Tesco or Walmart or Carrefour where there's a book section. So, you know, no, no one in toys is going to have their product here. Whereas if you go to the app section, uh, the kids section of the app store is everyone. Uh, the book section of the app store, too, is also everyone. Um, everyone makes apps and submits it into that section. Um, and branding, of course, uh, and co competition, again, I think our fiercest competitors, again, are also our biggest partners. Uh, which I think it will be really interesting to see how this all plays out. I mean, in music and film, we've already seen that Amazon is, is a massive competitor, um, and it's interesting to see what they might, might or might not do with, with books as well. So back to licensed publishing. Uh, and, you know, these days, any licensed publishing program, especially in kids, would involve an app as well. Uh, not always paid for, but, but, but an app nevertheless. Uh, when I left Penguin, I went to work at Mind Candy, and they're a games company based, based in East London, and they're known for a big virtual world called Moshi Monsters, and, which was like the biggest thing, uh, sort of, I would say, about two years ago. So really aimed at kids not, about 9 to 13, although now it's gone quite young, 7 plus, I would say like about 6, 6 plus, even 5 plus. And Moshi Monsters, for those of you who aren't aware, is a massive virtual world. You pick a monster, you customize him, her, and then you create, you have a room, you kind of complete tasks, do lots of mini games to, to earn trophies to be the first to do this, or you know, the, you know, the first 1,000 people to have this thing for your wall, um, decorate your room to brag, to brag to your friends. And it really was aimed at the pre-Facebook generation, um, kind of social, it was social networking in a safe way for kids who couldn't be on Facebook yet. And you know, and it gets quite mental, like kids who are really, really into it get really into it. And this is someone who's like a, a, clearly a mega fan and their room is all decked out with all crazy stuff. And when we first started working with the guys at Moshi Monster, I, I was at Penguin, and we, I wanted to do a book deal with them because they had this giant world that, um, at its height, had about 100 million players around the world, active, active players around the world, which is massive. Um, and we wanted to do books, and we were kind of exploring the world. You know, the editors were kind of, got, we got free accounts and sort of exploring the world, and we noticed that there was this one character that seemed, that a lot of people seemed to uh, connect in. It was this kind of pirate character. So I went back to the guys at, the, at Mind Candy at the game studio and was like, so who is this guy? We want to do books about him. Like, oh, we don't know. You don't really need to know who he is to play the game. Like, so is he a, pi is he a pirate? They're like, yeah, I guess so. You know, there's a, there's a skull in the boat, so we guess he's a pirate. <laughs> and what was interesting is that the writers at the games company, they only wrote sort of 
what the player might see in the game. Everything else was sort of irrelevant. That volcano in the background, what is that? Don't know. When is it going to explode? We don't know. It's like, well, when we create the books, when we write the books, we're going to tell those stories. We're going to give him a backstory. And what we did was we also, what we wanted to do was not just adapt what the player does in the game in our books. We wanted the books to be sort of non-fiction within the fictional world. So expand the story world of, of Moshi Monsters. And so what we did was we worked with uh, the games guys and came up, we created a new character. Buster Bumblechops is his name. And he's this kind of like David Attenborough come Indiana Jones character who's, you know, explore the entire world to find every moshling that exists. And we released his moshling a collector's guide, which was sort of his uh, diary or journal as he was exploring the, you know, the wildest reaches of, of Moshi Island. And we also created Buster's Lost Moshlings, which was kind of a, a Where's Wally um, type of book, uh, looking for the moshlings. And, you know, when we did biographies behind all the non-player characters, expanded the world, and those became some of the most uh, popular titles as well and the, the characters we invented then made their way back into the world and we even did a book launch for uh, the Moshling Collector's Guide with Buster Bumblechops live um, on the website uh, to launch the book and everyone kind of bought it online which was which was really fun and we even uh, created an app for uh, Buster's Lost Moshlings and I'll just show you a, a, a quick trailer of the app To date, this app is still one of uh, Mind Candy's best-selling Moshi Monsters app, and I'm quite proud of the fact that this app came from a book publisher. Um, and I think, I mean, what was really interesting working on the app is that, you know, a, an editor and designer in your Rolodex, or address book, I guess no one has a Rolodex anymore, but in your, in your, in your, in your address book, um, you know, you might, you would have, you know, you know, writers, you have authors, you have illustrators, you might have paper engineers, maybe sculptors, or people would do collage, but all of a sudden now we also had composers, animators, uh, developers, uh, editors and designers uh, who were sort of nurturing as, as creative talent. And uh, Moshi Monsters is hugely, hugely popular. They've now since declined because they're a web-based company that did not move to mobile. Um, so it's, it's a massive decline, but at its heyday, um, this, was, this was like one of their super fans. Uh, the reason they were so successful is they constantly, constantly talked to their users, to the players. And it was all about the user experience, constantly finding out not so much what the people liked, but more what people didn't like. Because I think that is actually more useful. And I think it's something that, you know, people in gaming, the gaming industry, people, you know, our cousins in, in other media industries, television, uh, film, even in toys, do a lot of consumer research. Publishing in general, we tend not to do that at all. There's definitely this sort of like librarian sort of, mentality where we have made this it is good you know 
you're welcome type of mentality. Whereas, you know, other, other media industries, they talk to the consumer. And I think now that we have a direct relationship with them by Amazon and, and, and other ways, you know, through social media, it's really important. A lot of publishers now are really taking data and consumer research very, very seriously. I think, you know, UX is, a, is, a, is an acronym that's kind of used a lot in gaming circles, user experience. I think RX is reading experience is something we should think about. I mean, you know, are, are chapters too long for, for different age groups? Do they want them shorter, longer? Uh, are, books, are physical books, are they too heavy? You know, how, but we don't talk to kids, we don't talk to consumers about how they like the reading experience, and it's something I think we should. So um, I first started working with the guys that made me when I was at Penguin, and together in 2000, late 2009, we launched um, this interactive, um, I guess, interactive kind of educational storytelling brand called The Land of Me, and I'll just show you another trailer. Welcome to The Land of Me, a world of creativity and learning for adventurers aged two and above. The Land of Me is an interactive early learning experience quite unlike anything you've seen before. Meet Eric, Buddy Boo, and Willow. Wake up, you lazy lot. Let's go adventuring. And journey through six stunning chapters. Together you'll make monsters, alter environments, construct buildings, dances, compose music, tell stories and more. The land of me is alive. Spot changes in the weather. Watch as day turns to night. Disturb the wildlife in the background. Or just observe as the characters drift off to sleep. Designed by child development experts to nurture creativity, language, and a healthy imagination, The Land of Me encourages you to play together. Continue the adventure away from the screen with over 100 printable activities. <coughs> Where the story goes from here is up to you. So as I mentioned, we launched uh, The Land of Me in 2009, and it was a series of, of seven apps, back when the word app meant application that you downloaded from the web onto your desktop. And you know, we, we uh, were nominated for BAFTA, we won loads of awards. Um, the Ministry of Education in Scotland was testing it out in primary schools. We, were ha we had a few boroughs in London also testing it as well. And we sold about, about uh, 20,000 units of it, and it was quite expensive. You bought uh, all seven together for, I think it was like 20 pounds, and each one individual was seven, seven pound ninety-nine. But then Apple announced that they were launching this thing called the iPad, and this, of course, was all in Flash, completely incompatible. And we had spent, we had this, an idea that was like this big, and we had spent, we spent about 300,000 pounds on it. And by the time Apple announced iPad was coming out, most of that money had been spent. It was like there was no way we could just start over, um, and it was completely incompatible. We didn't re really know if iPad was going to work, and we were like, let's just pretend it's not going to work. <laughs> so of course, when iPad came out, all the sales suddenly stopped. All the schools who loved this said, we would love this for, for a tablet. Can you just make it into an app for tablets? Like, no, we couldn't. So although it was a financial, uh, it was a creative success and a critical success, it was an absolute disaster financially. Um, and using that sort of, I mean, I was lucky I wasn't fired, but 
the CEO was like, okay, so what's next? What do we do? This didn't work. I mean, it would have worked, but we couldn't have predicted this. Uh, you know, as a company, we decided we were going to go forward with it as a, as a web proposition. What, what are we going to do for this tablet, this iPhone thing? So the next idea we had was also something this big, but we, we learned a lesson, and we spent um, about eight grand developing something this big first and launched it to see what would happen. Uh, and this is MeBooks, which is the, apps, the app that we're known for today. So what we wanted to do was create an app that replicated a behavior that's always existed since adults and kids read together, and that when you read a book to a child, they want that book read like a thousand times. So by the tenth time, if not for your own sanity, you just start making stuff up and encourage the child to do that too. And what we did with this app was to uh, use the technology to encourage that behavior. You can save different versions. You know, if you're, Families have accounts, so you can actually record a version if you're, say, traveling on business, and then at nighttime, the child can, uh, can pick it up and, and hear your, your story. So the lesson we learned is, you know, it's something that's talked about a lot in the gaming was iterate, so start small and change it. And our business model has changed a lot since we, since we launched MeBooks. And if we had sort of gone too far down one direction, we would not be where we are today at all. Because actually, interestingly, is that every strategy we had has been proven wrong, and everything that has succeeded has been an accident that we instantly were able to turn and pick up on. Um, and you know, when we first started creating MeBooks, when I was at Penguin, we, were very, we weren't sure if we should add more interactivity. Should there be gaming? Should there be you know, video content? But you know, in talking to a lot of games people and just doing some research, consumer research on user experience and how people think, is that you know, gaming is a very different type of uh, behavior. You know, in the gaming world, again, gaming is, is, is described as a lean forward experience. It's directly engaging you. Whereas reading is a lean back experience in a way that TV is as well. And this is why people, you'll read at the beach or read in the bath, but no one plays a game in the bath. Um, and you read before going to bed, but no one plays a game before going to bed. But if you do, you know, it, it kind of amps you up rather than calms you down. And so we realized that for MeBooks to work, we needed to adapt a behavior that's already existed and not ask the consumer, the reader, to, to form a behavior that's not natural and no one has ever done before. So MeBooks is essentially, it's a, it's a free app, you download it, and you get one free book, the Little Red Riding Hood book you see there, and then you go into an in-app shop where you can buy additional books. Um, and when we launched, we were, we've been in the top 10 uh, in the children's app since we launched, and a lot of it has to do with Peppa Pig. Um, and we were the first app that actually had Peppa Pig in it, and so whenever people searched in 2010, Peppa Pig app, ours was the only one that came up, and so since then it did really well. But we realized we couldn't count always on Peppa Pig to deliver us our, our consumers, and so we would really need to figure out how we can get people to find this, you know. On the app stores, unlike, say, Waterstones or Barnes & Noble or Tesco, you know, you can't give them marketing money to get the books at front of store. The, you know, the, the app store guys, you know, for better or for worse, you cannot affect if they're going to promote you or not, how long or when. So we tried some banner ads. They did nothing. Uh, we tried print ads. Again, they did nothing. You know, with the banner ads, what was interesting is that we did a lot of people finding our app via the banner ad because you could see how they clicked through. But the average daily sales rate didn't change. So if you know 300 people found us from a banner ad, somehow 300 less people found us just accidentally. It was weird. It never changed no matter what banner ads we did. On um, print ad, of course, it wasn't measurable at all, um, and it did nothing. And our marketing strategy that has worked now it was a complete accident. So a friend of mine, was the, he was one of the uh, marketing directors at Save the Children. And he wanted to do a campaign at Christmas time where he gave away a digital book. And he was like, you know, can you do this? Is, is that something your app can do? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure we can kind of, you know, change it a bit to, to make it work. 
And what we wanted to do was that one in five people who downloaded the free app would buy a book. So my marketing strategy was we want five million people to download this app because then we realize we get one million in sales and then we can all buy our island in Tahiti, right? <laughs> but, um, so yes, that would be great. And Adam, my friend said, look, I think we're gonna be able to get about 100,000 downloads. Does that sound good? I'm like, yeah, perfect, sounds great. Um, and then he said, how much are you charging us for this campaign? I was like, what? And he's like, you're, you're charging us, right? And I went back to him going, of, of, of course, of course we're charging you. <laughs> so, you know, he was saying to me, he's like, look, Eric, you know, this is, the, what, what you're doing is no different from what McDonald's does. When McDonald's, say, gives away minions figures on their Happy Meal box, they pay the toy company a unit cost. So this is no different. He's like, moving forward, I'm going to start this conversation over. How much are you charging us for this? So now... We work with lots of different companies um, to, where they give away free me books. We get the download, we get their email addresses, so they download the app, one in five of them will buy another book, but then this comp the company will also pay us per download. So our marketing strategy has now become our biggest revenue stream. And I would say about 80% of our money actually comes from marketing rather than actually selling digital books to consumers, which is actually super hard. Um, but, you know, and also not all promotions were equal. We, we, we did some promotions with our newspapers where we were giving away free me books via um, online as well as physical uh, via the Daily Mail, Guardian, and also the Telegraph. Um, and the daily download rate that, that over the weekend was about 20. So it was terrible. It was really, really terrible. And when I started, started asking around some friends, were like, you know, did you see our promotion in the paper over the weekend? It's like, yeah, I did. But, you know, I was reading the paper and my phone was kind of in the other room and it's kind of my time to myself. And I told myself I'd do it later, but of course they didn't. I'll contrast that to a promotion we did at Giraffe restaurant chain, um, you know, which is famously a restaurant chain for, for, for families. So if you have kids, it's a great place to go. But if you don't, it's horrific because it's full of kids, <laughs> very noisy. Um, but the thing is, is that our daily download rate at Giraffe over the weekend was about 2,000 a day. And why? Because they take about a half hour to 40 minutes for the food to come. And so they all had, on the restaurants where they actually put the point of sale out on table to say, download a free book, everyone's like, yes, please. Download a book for the kids. So again, it's about consumer behavior and thinking about where, you know, our, our best promotions come from where families and kids are together, ideally waiting or sitting doing nothing for a while. And that's where it works a lot. Um, and again, but, you know, promotions has been great. And as I say, it's, it's 80, about 80% of our revenue stream. But... We also know that we can't, you know, once we do a promotion with Eurostar, they don't want to repeat it again. They don't want to do the same thing over and over. So it's not scalable. It's not repeatable. So we launched a website, and we, so you can, you know, do sales from the website, which is great because you also don't have to share the 70% uh, with Apple or Google. And, but we have to focus on search and how do we get people to find our website. And obviously, these days, search, it's all about Google. That's the only thing we think about. Um, and so we launched the website, and, you know, being on the website is more... Um, it allows us more flexibility to we can bundle, which in the App Store you can't. You can do kind of promotions and stuff, which in the App Store, again, you can't. Um, and we did a few sort of ad campaigns around, around search terms. Um, and, you know, we, we thought ourselves, we were like, hey, you know, I think search terms, people using to finding us, probably digital books, uh, book reading. Uh, but then a friend of mine who actually does um, proper sort of research on, on uh, search terms um, he was like, do you want me just to do some research for you? Because, you know, the obvious thing you think is never going to be actually what's going to happen. Like, well, yes, please do it. And this is what he found, which was fascinating. Like, when you see it, you're like, yeah, of course. 
And we were being very sort of, I think, industry about it, digital books, reading, whereas the consumer is thinking about, I need something, it's bedtime, what's a bedtime story? And so once we kind of changed our ad campaign to bedtime stories, our, the traffic to our website increased by about eight times. So MeBooks, interestingly, started off as a bookshop, or a digital bookshop, then became and is still a marketing platform. And it's now something quite different, which happened again by accident, where we were working with a company, uh, with one of the, uh, a big company, where they wanted us to um, confirm by Friday three books they can use in a campaign that they were going to put on three million boxes of cereal. So I'm like, yes, we have to do this. Um, so I went to all the publishers to say, hey, do you want to be in this, this promotion? Can we give away your free book? Can we run Disney, BBC, Penguin, HarperCollins, everyone. Everyone's like, wow, what a great reach. It'd be great for publicity. Plus, you'll get paid for it. But I said, but you have to confirm by Friday, which they all laughed at me because, of course, you know, oh, our marketing meetings are every other Thursday. I don't work Thursday, so you're going to have to wait a week, a month. And I realized I was going to have to go back to this point and just say, we need more time to confirm, in which case they would say, you know what, we're going to talk to someone else because, you know, they're not like publishing. They don't wait. They don't, they don't wait two weeks for, for a free email back. So what we decided to do was we're just going to make up three, three books, just make up three titles. And then within that year, because there's no print, no, no, no shipping, we'll, we'll just make it. We all come from publishing. We know how to make books. We're just going to make up three titles and do it. So we did. Um, the first was so it became a publishing platform. The first title we created was A Home for Humphrey, which is about a little bear named Humphrey who next, he's old enough that next winter he has to hibernate in his own cave. Very sad. So he spends the rest of the year looking for potential flatmates, none of whom are quite right. And then when the first snows of winter fall, he returns to his cave quite depressed and a little scared. But luckily, a family of bats has roosted in the cave, and they spend a really lovely winter together. And accidentally, um, I've not announced this yet, but a friend of mine uh, who's a picture book publisher at a major publishing house, I was showing her this. She's like, I love this. Are you guys publishing this physically? I'm like, no, we're not. She's like, can I buy world rights from you? So I said yes. <laughs> the second book we created is called Little Legends. Uh, Little Legends, um, as well, is about, it's a kind of this mashup fairy tale. It's a chapter book series, illustrated chapter books. We've just sold the rights to Pan Macmillan. They actually bought a three book deal from us. And we're also in discussions with a television company to develop it for, for TV, for Six Plus. And here's just some of the more of the development art. Uh, but the book launches in, um, in February of this year. Uh, and it's written by Tom Percival who was also published by, uh, by Bloomsbury. Um, we're also, interestingly, working with uh, a museum. There's a book called Dinosaur Roar, which just celebrated its 20th anniversary last year. Um, and um, the, there's a company called Nurture Media, who are a TV production company who just bought it, and they've launched a magazine. And we're actually working with a natural history museum who, it's interesting, museums are where publishers were about 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago. Um, they're suddenly realizing we're actually part of the media industry, we have content. We need to engage kids and families in a way that we haven't before because we have loads of content, loads of stories. And what they're doing is they've bought into Dinosaur Roar as well, which we're launching as a media book and digitally. Um, and they're gonna relaunch Dinosaur Roar as the Natural History Museum's dinosaur brand uh, in January. So all their family communication, everything, it'll start appearing in the museum. So they're gonna start thinking like entertainment companies because they're also realizing that, you know, I think they're the last entertainment industry that hasn't actually come on board to digital, to branding, to all this other stuff that we're just talking about. I'm running out of time, but the last um, sort of uh, book that we created, which again, we have a book deal, but hasn't been announced, was actually 
we launched this book, but we also thought it would make a good game, so we, we made a game as well, which has nothing to do with publishing, but I just think it's really cute. Welcome, young friend, to the strange world of sleep, where beasties live most bizarre and unique. The aim of this game is to take the best snack of the beasties lured out by the bait in your trap. Silently sneak. So again, the, the, book, the book is out, is going to be out on Me Books. Well, we actually delayed it because the publisher wants us to launch, they want to launch the physical book along with the Me Books, so we took it off, so we were launching it together. It's going to be autumn next year. So in summary, I think these are like the three most important things about being in publishing today. So first is not being so wedded to one business model and not spending too much time or money on one direction so that you're kind of stuck this way and to be able to turn really quickly. See, you know, see the opportunities and then act on them very quickly. Secondly, talk to the consumer. Um, it's so important to think about behavior and the way people think, especially now that we have direct access to our readers. It's important to think of not, you know, I think that the problem with publishing a lot is that in the past we've always marketed to readers, not to children, to readers, not to people, and just to think about them in, in a wider scope. And lastly, you know, it all comes to the quality of the story or the brand that you're creating. And I think all of my examples come from kids publishing, but I just want to end really quickly on something else that I've been working on, which is, has nothing to do with all these kind of pretty kids things that we've been, we've been looking at. So Morbid Anatomy is a blog that a friend of mine launched in 2007, and it's kind of very gothy. It's about things like anatomical models, about um, taxidermy, about the history of magic. And, but... You know, since 2007, she's had so many uh, visitors and viewers that she actually got a donation from a fan to open a museum in Brooklyn. So she opened the Morbid Anatomy Museum, and from this museum and from her Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, you know, and just the website, her blogs, uh, feed, we started launching product, so t-shirts. And every time we tweet, uh, we sell about 50 t-shirts. Um, we even have ho ho are hosting weddings in the museum now from kind of gothy couples or steampunky couples who want to get married in this venue. Hosting flea markets, again, just through their social media reach. And in the last two years, we've kick-started very successfully three books and are now in discussions with um, a major publisher to, be our act to launch Morbid Anatomy Press. And this is all because this is a very, very niche topic but through the web, because of all these things, we're able to reach everyone who likes this topic. Um, and it's all about iterating. You know, the thing that makes the museum the most money, it's the cafe. And once we got a liquor license, that by far makes the most money. <laughs> so Joanna, who was the creative director, was really like, I don't want to just turn into a bar, but it's like, well, we have to, because selling tickets actually doesn't pay. And when you talk to the Tate, the you know, Natural History Museum, the most profitable stuff is events and, and bars. Um, discoverability, user experience, talk to your consumers, how do you get found? So we do a lot of SEO work so that anyone searching for anything, anything in this er area comes to Morbid Anatomy. And again, store your brand, be, be, you know, be true to your original um, concept. Um, you know, if you're, if you're Peter Rabbit, don't do a deal with McDonald's. If you're a Disney princess, yes, it makes sense. But you know, be true to your story and brand and quality. Thank you.